bow with me in prayer? Father, we love you so much. Thank you for first loving us. Thank you for loving us enough to give us your word, uh, for revealing yourself to us through your word, um, for preserving your word um, through the through the centuries uh, so that we have it here today. Thank you for the privilege of having your word right here in front of us. Father, we recognize that there are folks around the world that, that don't have a copy of your holy word. And Father, uh, we don't want to take for granted um, that we do. Father, we also don't just want to have it, but we want to read it and we want to study it. We want to learn it. We want to apply it to our lives. Uh, Father, we can't do that without your help. And so, again, we declare our dependence upon you as we, um, as we come to your word. Father, we need you to help us understand what is here. We need you to help apply it to our lives. Father, we give this portion of our service to you. Father, we ask that you would do in us whatever it is that you want to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is the season that I've never really cared about before until, I guess I should say, this year. Um, The season called March Madness. Some of you know what that means. Some of you probably don't don't really care. Um, And that's okay. I've never really cared, to be honest with you. Um, uh, just never, never, I've always enjoyed, by the way, it has to do with basketball. Um, I always enjoyed playing basketball. I always hated watching basketball. It's just how it was. Even as a kid, I hated watching it, but I'd play it all day long, every day. If there was a ball and a goal, I'd play basketball, but I always hated watching it. Uh, but, uh, this year, this year, I have to say that I've got into it a little bit, maybe, maybe a little bit too much. Um, I, I now have some friends that enjoy it, and so I've enjoyed watching it um, and, and talking with them about what team is doing well and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, also, and this plays a pretty big role in my involvement in March Madness this year. By the way, March Madness is the college basketball tournament, and um, it's a- almost coming to an end. A couple of games today and tomorrow, and then. Uh, I think it'll wrap up sometime in the next week or so. I don't really know. Um, but but my wife's alma mater is doing really well, and they weren't supposed to, and they're still in the tournament. And so um, I am uh, I am trying to win some brownie points. And uh, I even, this is sad to say, by the way, her alma mater is not my alma mater, and I even wore her team colors, not just colors, but an actual shirt that has the team name on it the other day um, in honor of them playing in that particular game. And so um, I, I don't even want to admit that. I'm not even going to say what team name it is because it's just, it's just hard for me to, um, to say that I even put that shirt on and wore it in, and wore it in public. Uh, <laughs> She's not here, yeah which is why I'm just not going to say it, because I'm not trying to earn brownie points right now. She's not in here. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, so I, I've, 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 I've kind of got the, the, the basketball bug, if you will, a little bit, and I have enjoyed watching it. It's been fun. It's been some really close games. Um, and I was thinking about that and, uh, and thinking, thinking back to when I was a kid and, and we would be picking teams for, for sports, whether it was, you know, out at the playground recess, we were going to be playing some football or some basketball or some baseball or whatever we were going to be playing. And, um, and, uh, and you, you, you were sizing people up, right? 
Uh, I, I, would, I would size people up, and, and somebody said, well, this person's the captain, and this person's the captain, and we start picking teams. And, I, and immediately I would look, and I would say, I, well, I want to be on that person's team. I don't want to. I, listen, I was competitive. I wanted to win. And, uh, and so I looked at the person, and I sized them up and said, that's the person's team that I want to be on. Now, if we were playing basketball, and we were fixing to pick teams, and I brought up here two folks, and one of them was five foot six, and the other was six foot five. On up there, whose team would you want to be on? But yeah, we're playing basketball, right? And so I want to be on the tall guy's team because he looks the part. He looks like he was the one that could win. He could bring us home the trophy. The victory is probably going to be enjoyed by his team. That's the team that I would want to be on. I would look at how they looked, and I would make my just judgment based on that. The problem with that is, and this is true in all of life, looks can be what? Deceiving. Looks can be deceiving. And when it comes to the saving strength of God, looks can be deceiving. The same is true with the one that John the Baptist introduced as, Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. His looks were deceiving. This one that John the Baptist introduced, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we'll see, didn't appear to be all that he claimed to be. And because of that, Many people rejected him. And I'm afraid that today, many people still reject him. What did John the Baptist mean when he introduced Jesus with these words? Behold the Lamb. We're turning our attention for a few weeks to a passage in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. And we're asking this question, who is this Lamb? And this is the Messiah. This land that John the Baptist talked about and introduced to the world is the Messiah prophesied about in this passage of Scripture. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 52. This is the fourth, as we mentioned last week, the fourth of four key passages in Isaiah which prophesy of this servant of God, this this coming servant of God. And last week, We looked at the first stanza of this prophecy, uh, verses 13 through 15 of chapter 52, and we saw that that this servant is the wisdom-displaying servant. We talked about the wise plan of salvation that seems like foolishness to the world, but it is God's wise plan of salvation. But today, we want to go to the next stanza, uh, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 53. And as we do, we're going to learn that Jesus is the strength-revealing man. Jesus is the strength-revealing man. Let's follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read these three verses. Isaiah 53, 1 through 3, this is the Word of God. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. I think in this passage, these three verses, we learn this, that Jesus fits the picture of the rejected man who strangely revealed the saving strength of God. Jesus fits the picture of the rejected man who strangely revealed the saving strength of God. I told you last week that I'm just going ahead and giving you the end of the story. This is a prophecy. Nobody knew Jesus' name yet when this was written. And so as we read this, we kind of want to put ourselves in, in the shoes of the listeners and say, well, who is this? Who could this be? Who fits this picture? But I just want to go ahead and tell you that it's Jesus. And so we're just going to jump right to the end, if you will, and say this is Jesus. He fits the picture of the rejected man Isaiah prophesies about in these three verses who strangely revealed the saving strength of God. I use the word strangely coming from a human perspective, from our perspective. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. It seems strange, but it is the saving strength of God. There's a key phrase before we walk through this that I want to go ahead and, and unpack for us today. Look at chapter 53, verse 1. There's two questions. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And then the second question, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now think about that phrase, the arm of the Lord, for just a moment. Some of you may know immediately what that's referring to. Some of you may, may not be so sure. What is it talking about, the arm of the Lord? Is it literally talking about God's arm? Well, God is spirit. He doesn't have physical attributes like we do. It's not literally talking about his arm. In Scripture, the arm of the Lord is a phrase used to refer to the strength or the power of the Lord. You could say it this way, the power of God in action. The strength of God. And specifically, and I'll show you a verse in just a moment in chapter 52, the saving strength of God. God's power and ability to save. That's what's referred to in that question, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 9. We see strength displayed in rescuing Israel from Egypt and is referred to as the arm of the Lord. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. And it goes, uh, the passage goes along with, um, with describing and recounting when God rescued the children of Israel out of Egypt. It's called the arm of the Lord that rescued them. But then go to chapter 52, verse 10. I want you to focus on this verse for just a moment. Remember we said in chapter 52, that first part of chapter 52, verse 1 through 12, it's this prophecy that there's a deliverance coming. And now the passage that we're looking at is answered the question, who is the deliverer? But in verse 10 of chapter 52, it says, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The Lord has bared his holy arm. I remember when I was a kid, and I, I, would, I would wear... Um, I, my mom's here. She probably would attest to this. I like to wear, and we always call it a muscle man shirt, right? I, I like to wear those. And, um, and, and, and I had this little bandana, and it said power or strength or something on it. And I remember wearing that thing around. And, um, and I would bare my strong, scrawny little arms, right? 
And, and, and you know this, if you ask a kid, let me see how strong you are. What do we do? We flex our leg muscle, right? We don't, we don't do that. So let me see how strong you are. Oh, right? That's how we show how strong we are. We show our arm muscle. Well, that, that, that's this bearing of his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. If, if you think about, if you, if you um, like to text or use your iPad or iPhone and you use emojis sometimes, right? There's the, there's the muscle one, the strong one. I, I don't know what you may use that for, but, uh, but that's what we're thinking about, right? The strong arm of the Lord. What is this arm doing in chapter 52, verse 10? All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So when we think about the arm of the Lord, we're thinking about the saving strength or the saving power of God. Y'all just be glad that I didn't decide to illustrate that by wearing my old muscle man shirt. <laughs> that would not be good. But Jesus is this promised deliverer. So in, in chapter 52, the, the sal- salvation, the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God, the saving strength of God. Well, who is that going to be? It's Jesus. So when we go to chapter 53, verse 1, and it says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord, the saving strength of God, is none other than Jesus. He is the saving strength of God. It's the servant that we read about up in verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. You should be high and lifted up. We said that's Jesus. Well, it's the same, uh, same person here. To whom is the arm of the Lord? Who, to who has Jesus been revealed? So then when we begin to follow through the rest of this passage, we know that we're talking about the saving strength of God. First truth I want to share with you today is this. The strength of Jesus was revealed for the purpose of believing. The strength of Jesus was revealed for the purpose of believing. Let's back up to that first question. Who has believed what he has heard from us? One of the most important words in all the Bible is the word believe. Believe. That's what God wants us to do with His saving strength, with Jesus, to believe it, to believe this message of salvation, to believe in this One who is strong and mighty to save. The strength of Jesus is revealed not just to give us information for our minds, not just so we can answer a a quiz, uh, take a quiz on the Bible and get the answer right, but the purpose is so that we will believe in this Jesus. I think about uh, the Apostle John and he wrote his gospel. He said, I've written these things so that you will believe in this Jesus, so that you'll believe in this one that I'm writing about. Not just writing this so you'll have something fun to read. I'm not just writing you so you'll have an interesting story. I'm not just writing you so you can know some things that happened in history. I'm writing this so that you will believe. And the question is, who has believed what he has heard? God's saving strength should be believed. But unfortunately, the Jews didn't. The Jews didn't. John chapter 12, verse 37 through 38, we read about the life of Jesus. And it says, though he had done so many signs before them, They still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then in Romans chapter 10, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? The Jews saw Jesus, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but they didn't believe. 
God's saving strength should be believed, but God's saving strength must be revealed before anyone can believe. This revealing is something that really only God can do. It's something that only He can do. God's plan of salvation is foolish from a human manner of thinking. Again, we talked about that last week. If you just remind yourself, verse 13 says, My servant shall act wisely. He's going to be exalted. And then right after that, verse 14 says that he suffers intensely. He's marred beyond human semblance. Well, how is this a wise plan? God knows that about us. Listen, the the message of the cross, the message of Jesus seems, seems foolish. It doesn't seem strong. Jesus seems weak. And left to ourselves, we will reject Jesus. We'll say, certainly that's not the saving strength of God. This lowly carpenter from Nazareth, who, as we'll read about in a couple of weeks, is led like a lamb to the slaughter. He never even opens his mouth. He doesn't even put up a fight. And then they hang him on a cross. See, left to ourselves, we won't believe that kind of message, but it must be revealed to us by God. And thankfully, God loves us enough to open up our hearts and minds, to to take the blinders off of our eyes, and to give us hearts of flesh in place of the hearts of stone, so that we will believe. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says that even our faith is a gift from God, for by grace you are saved through faith. This is not your own doing. None of it is our doing. Yes, we choose to trust in Christ, but we even have to give God the credit for opening up our eyes so that we will behold the strong arm of the Lord. We will behold this servant. We will behold this Jesus, and we will believe. But why wouldn't the Jews believe in this one who is the arm of the Lord? Why does it not come naturally? Why wouldn't we just say, oh, yeah, Jesus, I definitely want to believe in him. I want to be on his team. Why would we look at him and say, Whew, I, don't, I don't know if I want him to pick me. Because that's exactly what the Jews did, and unfortunately, that's exactly what many of us do. We say, I don't want to be on Jesus' team. Why would we not want to do that? Well, verse 2 tells us that Jesus didn't look the part. Jesus didn't look the part. Truth number two this morning, the strength of Jesus was not found in his physical appearance. The strength of Jesus was not found in his physical appearance. What keeps us from believing? Well, one thing is that Jesus just doesn't look the part. His physical appearance just doesn't seem like a high and lifted up, exalted king. just doesn't seem like the strong arm of the Lord. To the world, Jesus didn't come from much. Notice verse 2, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. That out of dry ground, very likely referring to the fact that Jesus came from very humble beginnings. Matthew chapter 13, verse 53 and following. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Why didn't they believe? Because they looked at Jesus and said, He doesn't look like much. I know his brothers and sisters are. I know who his mom and daddy is. I know where he came from. That's not the strong, saving arm of the Lord. Not this man. 
John chapter 1, verse 45, we see Jesus calling his disciples not to pick on Jesus' brothers and sisters and family too much and as those who live in his hometown. We find these words, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So, so Philip is telling Nathanael, Hey, look, we, we found this one that Isaiah is talking about. We found this one prophesied about in our scriptures. We found him, and he is Jesus of Nazareth. And you know what Nathaniel said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yeah, right. This can't be the, the fulfillment of the prophecies of God. This can't be the strong, saving arm of the Lord coming from Nazareth, a podunk little town. No, can't be. To the world, Jesus didn't come from much, and to the world, Jesus didn't look like much. Notice the rest of verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. There's nothing about Jesus and his outward appearance that would have attracted us to him as someone who could be from God, someone who could be the answer to our greatest needs, someone who could deliver us from the enemy. Not this Man, his form and his beauty, or or it could be translated appearance. The same words used of Rachel in Genesis chapter twenty nine verse seven. It says Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. It was one of the wives of Jacob. She was beautiful. It's talking about her outward appearance. Same thing here. It's talking about Jesus' outward appearance. There's nothing about him and the way that he looked that would attract us to him. Majesty, no majesty that we should look at him. And majesty is an outward impressiveness expected of an important person. If somebody is royalty, go back to verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Verse 15, he's going to shut the mouths of kings. Like this is an important person. But not this man. He doesn't look important. This humble carpenter. Not him. Certainly not. Don't think I want to be on his team. I'm here to win, and I don't think he is a winner. He just doesn't look the part. But to God, Jesus fits the imagery, the picture of the promised root. To God, he does. Notice verse 2, for he grew up before him. Jesus grew up before him, that is before God, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. It's easy to read over that. And miss something important that Isaiah is referring us to. Isaiah uses this imagery of a root or a shoot or a branch throughout his prophecy. I'm going to take you back to Isaiah chapter 4 verse 2. Isaiah chapter 4 verse 2. We find these words. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Chapter 6 verse 13. After God says that the people are not going to believe and he's going to lay the cities, um, uh, lay them to waste and they're not going to be inhabited and places are going to be forsaken, all this punishment. He says the holy seed is its stump. There's something left there. There's this holy seed that is this stump that this branch or this root is going to come from. We'll flip over to chapter 11 of Isaiah verse 1. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot. From the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, Jesse is the father of David. 
And Jesus is a descendant of King David, which means he's a descendant of David's father, Jesse. There's going to come forth from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. For the righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Okay, now this is somebody who I want to be on his team, right? He's going to strike the earth. Righteousness is the belt, right? Faithfulness is the belt. He's going to strike the earth and the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Just the, his breath. I don't think that means his breath stinks. It just means his power in his words, right? I mean, okay, I want to be on, the, I want to be on this branch's team. This, this shoot from the stump of Jesse. I, I'll pick him. This sounds like someone is, who is mighty. But then we get over to chapter 53 and we get more information and this root, though, doesn't look outwardly like what Isaiah has already been prophesying about. This root's supposed to be mighty and powerful. This branch is supposed to be strong. And he's supposed to kill the wicked and he's going to deliver us. But he doesn't look like someone who could do that. There's no form or majesty about him that we would look at him. There's no beauty that we would desire him see the jews wanted the beautiful and glorious part of the promised root but not the plain and physically unattractive part and i think we could fall into the same problem today where we want the glorious part of jesus but we don't want the suffering part that's a problem Let's ask that question again. Why wouldn't the Jews believe in this one who is the arm of the Lord? Why does it not come naturally for us to believe in Jesus? Verse 2 told us that Jesus didn't look the part, and verse 3 tells us that he didn't play the part. Truth number 3. The strength of Jesus was not found in his earthly acceptance. The strength of Jesus was not found in his earthly acceptance. See, not only is Jesus standing there picking his team, so to speak, and I go, Jesus, five foot six, can't jump. I don't want to be on his basketball team. He doesn't look the part. Not only that, but nobody likes him. He's not popular. He doesn't have any friends. You see, when I'm my seven or eight year old self out on the playground wanting to figure out whose team I want to be, wanted to be on, First and foremost, I want to be on somebody who could team who could win, and they, they, they had the skill set necessary. But I also want to be on a team that's kind of popular. Like, I don't want to be on the rejected team that nobody wanted anything to do with. I wanted to win, and I wanted to be popular at the same time. Right? I wanted to be on that person's team. But Jesus doesn't look like he can win. Not only did that, but everybody hates him. Why would I be on his team? Notice verse 3. He was despised. And rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We naturally want to belong to the popular 
and powerful. We naturally want to belong to those who enjoy earthly acceptance. We don't want to be rejected by everyone. That's, that just doesn't come naturally to us. We don't want to follow someone who is rejected by the world. But notice the words used to describe this servant. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, they're ashamed of him. And just kind of as a, an aside, but it's not an aside, notice too the, the word used, a man of sorrows. As we're walking through this larger passage, we're trying to decide who is the identity, what's the identity of this servant. And we said last week that this, this is God because he shall be high and lifted up in, in verse 13 of chapter 52. And we said that's a phrase only used of God. So we said this servant is God, and yet here the servant is described as a man of sorrows. Interesting. Interesting. So this one who is the saving strength of God is described as God, and at the same time is described as man. I want to hold on to that thought, but he's not a popular man. He doesn't look like a powerful man. He doesn't look like a man from royalty. He doesn't look like a man at whom kings would shut their mouths when they're in the presence of him. In fact, he's a man of sorrows and he's acquainted with grief. And notice not only the words used to describe this man, this, this servant who we know to be Jesus. Notice the response to the servant. He was despised. The people despised him. In Isaiah chapter 49 verse 7 the second of these servant songs, we find these words, Thus the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Can I just read that one more time? Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One. That's talking about the servant. That's talking about Jesus. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. Why would I want to be on his team? Not only is he despised, he's rejected. Jesus is rejected. Think back throughout Jesus' life. How often he experienced rejection. Oh, I know, he seemed to be pretty popular. But as soon as he didn't do the miracle that someone wanted, them, wanted him to do, just because they wanted to see another trick in his bag of, uh, of magic tricks, that's what they were thinking, they all left him. They would desert him. They would turn their back so much so that he would look at his closest disciples and says, what about and say, what about you? You want to go with them? The son of man has no place to lay his head. John chapter one, verse 11 says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. You know what it means if you don't receive someone it means you reject them. John chapter seven, verse five says, for not even his brothers believed in him. And then we find Luke chapter 23. We think about the pinnacle of the rejection of Jesus. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. That was even more than Jesus deserved. He doesn't even deserve to be punished and released. He hasn't done anything. 
They can't find anything wrong that Jesus has done. But they all cried out together. The ones who should have believed but are not believing. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Every opportunity to not reject Jesus is being given to these people. But they were urgent, the Bible says, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus. And then I could insert a word there, the innocent one. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Complete and total rejection. And then we have this final phrase of how they responded to him. And we esteemed him not. And we esteemed him not. This is an accounting phrase. It's an accounting phrase. uh, I don't even want to say this. It's tax season. And so I'll say it louder. You didn't hear me. Tax season. All right, so anyway, you think about accountants and all that kind of stuff, but it's an accounting, it's an accounting term, right? And uh, what you do when you account is, is, you, is you're determining the value of something. That's what an accountant does. They determine value of the, the company or the person or whoever they're keeping the books for. What's the value? How, how much is on the books? This is an accounting term here. They esteemed him not. Here, here's what it means. They looked at Jesus, looked at everything that they could see about him, and they found him worth nothing. They say, not even a little? You don't crucify someone that you think has any value. No, not even a little. They esteemed him not. But it doesn't just say they esteemed him not. It says we <laughs> esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. Turn their face from him. John chapter 12, verse 42 through 43. Why? Why would they Why would they turn from Jesus? I mean, just think for a minute about all the mighty works that Jesus did. I mean, he walked on water. He fed the 5,000. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And then when he spoke, uh, Scripture tells us over and over that when he opened his mouth and spoke, he spoke as one who had authority. I mean, people were mesmerized by his teaching. In awe at his works. Why did they consider him of no value? John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Whoa, really? Wow, that's awesome. Good news. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The problem was that they were too concerned with outward appearance and what the world said about them. That even though they said, this has to be somebody from God, this must be somebody special, I'd rather look good in the eyes of the world than look good in the eyes of God. 
They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And here's what Jesus says about that attitude. Luke 9, 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. They believed, but it wasn't a saving belief, not a belief that the Lord could accept. They were ashamed of him. I wonder today, are you ashamed of Christ? When the world mocks, when the world despises, when the world rejects, when the world esteems Jesus not, do you esteem him? Is he esteemed in your life? Had you considered him more valuable than anyone or anything? They were blind to their greatest need, and thus they devalued and despised and rejected the one who came to meet their greatest need. The one that they needed most. What is of greatest value to you today? You know, it's tempting to ask, how could they have done this to Jesus? I mean, how could they? How could they do this to this innocent man? How could they have cared only about his outward appearance? How could they have cared only about how popular Jesus was with the popular people? How could they have despised and rejected him? How could they have placed such a low value on him? How could they have said, I don't want to be on his team? The answer is the same way that you and I do. The same way that you and I do. Same way that maybe some of you are doing today. You're looking for someone to make you popular and physically strong and healthy and wealthy in this life. So then when you look at this Jesus, the physically unattractive, unpopular with the popular, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief Jesus, you say, nah, I don't think I want any part in that. I don't think Jesus is what I need. So you despise him. And you reject him. And you esteem him not. Can I just ask you this? What about your sin? See, if it weren't for sin in our lives, then Jesus could just be the high and exalted one. The one before whom kings shut their mouths. He wouldn't have had to come to the earth and be despised and rejected. Jesus didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom the first time he came. He came to be despised and rejected. Whose sorrows did he bear? Whose grief? Whose sickness? Is yours and mine. This man of sorrows is taking our place. We're the people filled with sorrow. We're the people filled with grief. We're the people filled with sin. And there's nothing that you and I can do to change that about ourselves. That is our greatest need in life is to have someone who would pay the price, who would forgive us, who would rescue us. The greatest need in our life is not someone who looks popular in the world's eyes, but someone who will destroy our sin. And that someone is Jesus. He's the only one. He's the only one who's been rejected for you. But you know, Jesus didn't remain a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, 
He paid the price for sin through his suffering, but then he rose again as the victorious king. And Isaiah is going to get there in this prophecy. And I'm looking forward to those verses when we get there. But you can't participate in his glorious resurrection unless you first participate in his lowly suffering. You can't have King Jesus without first believing in the rejected Jesus. There's two categories of people who are here today. No, I'm not about to make a Clemson or Carolina joke. It's much more serious than that. There's two categories of people who are here today. Those who are rejecting Jesus and those who have received Jesus. That's it. There's there's not a middle category. To have not received him is to have rejected him. I wonder where you're at today. If you have not received Jesus, then you are rejecting Him. But what you need to do is stop rejecting Him and receive Him. John. One more passage that I want to go to. John chapter 1. I read this verse a few minutes ago, but I want to read the next two verses. The bad news. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. This is John chapter 1 verse 11. So there's the possibility of not receiving Jesus. But the next verse, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, there's a possibility of rejecting Jesus, but there's also the possibility of receiving Jesus, of believing in him. And to everyone, to everyone who does receive him, to everyone who does receive the rejected man of sorrows, he gives the right, the right to become children of God. You know what that means? He fixes the problem of our sin because it's our sin that stands between us and God. He removes it. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So if you have been rejecting Jesus today, receive Him by faith. If you have received Jesus, just let you know that this passage does speak to us today too. There's application for us. You say, well, I've already believed in Jesus, so... Man, that's not a whole lot for me to learn here. I know that Jesus suffered and died and there wasn't anything physically attractive about him. And so, um, but I believe that, so I can just kind of move on. Let's get to the part that applies to me. Now, this applies to us in our walk with the Lord. Don't be surprised, Christian, when you are rejected too. In fact, I would say, be surprised if you're not being rejected. And claiming to be a follower of Christ. Luke chapter 9 verse 23. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life must lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world or loses or forfeits himself? In other words, he's saying, you can choose the world. And it will appear that you have life. And you'll have acceptance by the world. But it's only a temporary thing. Or you can choose to be rejected by this world temporarily and choose to follow Jesus and it will come with hardships 
But in the end, your soul will be saved. John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus said this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And John the Apostle says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Jesus didn't need to look attractive because he hadn't come to be popular. Jesus didn't need to look physically strong because he hadn't come to battle against a physical opponent. Jesus didn't need to look like a king because he hadn't come to set up an earthly kingdom yet. Jesus came to be the promised deliverer, which meant he came to sacrifice himself, which meant he would be despised and rejected. And this looks like weakness to the world, but it was not. Jesus was strong, and he is strong, strong enough to save us from our sin. Jesus did what no one else could do, what no one else can ever do. He may not have appeared to be strong, but there has never been anyone stronger, nor will there ever be. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17 says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one. Who will save? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Emmanuel, God with us. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. Oh, he may not look like it on the outside. But this man is more than just a man. Jesus, the strength revealing man of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1 through 3. Jesus fits the picture of the rejected man who strangely revealed the saving strength of God. But remember this. That's where we started. The saving strength of God, Jesus, was revealed. Why? So that we would believe. And by God's grace, I have. Only by His grace. I have believed. He has saved me from my sin. I'm so thankful for that. Have you? Have you believed? Who has believed? Verse 1. Who has believed? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We worship you. Father, you have revealed to us by your grace who this wise servant is. Your son, Jesus. Father, you have revealed to us through your word, even today, that though Jesus didn't look like much on the outside, Father, he was your saving arm. This was God come to earth to do battle against the enemy, to pay the price for our sins. And yes, it seems somewhat strange from a human perspective. But Father, as you begin to remove the scales from our eyes, and we begin to see the beautiful plan of salvation, we begin to realize by your grace that Jesus is the strong one who is mighty to save. 
And the only way he could save was to be rejected. Father, I pray that that question would ring in our ears and in our hearts right now. Right now. Who has believed? Father, can we raise our hand and say, I have believed. And even though following a rejected Savior means that I will be rejected by this world, it's okay. He is my King. And He's worthy of my life. And I would rather have forgiveness of sins and the right to be called a child of God for all of eternity and all the riches and the health and the popularity that this world thinks it can give me. Father, work in our hearts in this moment. If there's someone here, Lord, who needs to believe in Jesus, has never surrendered their life to Him, Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray.